1924, Chamonix was declared a success and so the quadrennial event became an official fixture. With Amsterdam set to be host of the Summer Games in 1928, it fell upon the IOC to search high and low through the Netherlands for the perfect winter venue. Welcome to Saint Moritz 1928. <laughs> Aren't we in the Netherlands, Ruth? Well, indeed, indeed. I, I, I'm not quite sure. I like. I mean, I've been to the Netherlands. Looks like the perfect place. But the Dutch did not want the Winter Olympics, Chris. No way. They didn't want it to take place in Amsterdam or anywhere else in the Netherlands. So they began talking with the French and came to an agreement with the officials in Chamonix to host the second games. But the thing is, this wasn't sanctioned by the IOC, and Pierre de Coubertin was up in arms about this duplicity. He said, The celebration of the Olympic Games is awarded to a city, not a country, and cannot be split under any pretext. It became pretty messy and highly politicised, with the IOC angry at the French, the Dutch angry at the IOC, and the French angry at everyone. And um, <laughs> it, it, it all came it all came to a messy, messy fore in 1926, when the French Senate escalated things much further and refused to grant the French IOC funding for preparing athletes for 1928. Um, at this point, the French Premier, Edouard Herriot, had to get involved, and eventually a compromise was reached. Chamonix would host preliminary events, and good old neutral Switzerland would host the Games. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) But, okay, but I just want to ask you one thing about what Pierre said. Yeah. Now we're on first-name terms, I think, at this point. Yeah. Um, The P-Dog. P-Dog. Which, by the way, this was the first Olympic Games... Uh, in which he was no longer the president. Was he president in 1925, though? Yeah, yeah, but the the 28 was the first games that he he was no longer in that position. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he said, so he said the games are awarded uh, to a city, not a country. Mm-hmm. Okay, but yeah, then I why know, in why I, I in 1924? <laughs> What? <laughs> well, so I mean, the thing is, in is it not? It's awarded to a country, not a city, and that c- no, would kind of make more no, sense no. then in that case. No. So what he was basically saying was like the Dutch basically took it upon themselves to say we're not going to host the Winter Olympics, so we're going to start negotiating on our off our own bash mm. to find a different host venue, which is in a completely different country. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, maybe somebody could argue that Chamonix wasn't meant to be. I mean, they were claiming it wasn't a real Olympic. True. At the time. Okay. We fair, know. Fair. We know that it was, but but like potentially we could have a bit of a bit of leeway there. Yeah. Um, but it, it was hugely contentious for many years to come. They were like, no, it needs to be in the same city, and if not in the same city, the same country. But yeah, it's just. I mean, it's it's very unlikely that you're going to find. A city that's going to be able to do both. This has inspired me to want to mention a quick story that I I thought would be something that's like, oh, this is kind of funny, last thing in the podcast thing. But with the whole Swiss-French tensions, I think I have to go for it. And it it has to do with the figure skating. Now, Mm -hmm. in the figure skating, of course, the stars at the time... Or Sonia Henny, who uh, won the first of her many goals, and Gillis Grefström, who won his third consecutive goal. But I'm going to the pairs. Okay. Because in the pairs, uh, André Jolie and Pierre Brunet won France's uh, first and only gold medals of that Games. Mm-hmm. And their first in the Winter Olympics, because as we know, four years previous, as the hosts, they only managed three bronze medals. Um, and I saw this piece where, uh, <laughs> from the final day, where back back then they they waited until the end to award all the winners in a final ceremony, 
and uh, do all the national anthems and have a big nice uh, ceremony at the end um Members of the brass band were uh, uh, quoted to be becoming breathless by playing the Norwegian anthem over and over again. But when it came to uh, rewarding or crowning André Jolie and Pierre Brunet of France and to play Les Massarets, the band struck up an ear-breaking, heart-rendering cacophony of sound. Spectators gasped, smiled, and finally, they guffawed. (laughs) Can't you play the Marseillais? Bellowed Franz Reichel, the French Olympic Committee secretary, to the bandmaster. To which he replied, It has been so long since you won an Olympic event, we had forgotten it, replied the Swiss German bandmaster blandly. (laughs) It's worth noting here that Switzerland in this Games did even worse. They won a single bronze medal, the lowest total for a host nation at any Olympic Games. Sure, look, Chris. Sure, look, those damn romance. <laughs> now, this isn't. The- <laughs> we mentioned Samaritz briefly in our last Olympopod. We did. Uh, because we mentioned Casper Badrut, who I like to think is kind of my anti persona, and we should call him just Casper Badrut. Because, I mean, that's essentially what it is. Casper Badrut. So Casper Badrut, he was a 19th century hotelier, entrepreneur, and he's credited as the first man to pelt rich English men down mountains. And so when we mentioned him last pod, it was because he was discontent with having an empty hotel for two thirds of the year. So he made a bet with a rowdy bunch of aristocratic regulars. He said, stay for the winter months. If you don't enjoy yourselves, you get your lodgings for free. But if you like it, then you have to spread the word. Essentially, he recruited uh, Victorian Instahuns. And it was a huge success. <laughs> and, and by the 1870s, the wealthy were flocking to Sam Moritz and Bad Roots establishment. Um, and we also mentioned in the last pod that the rambunctious Brits found that they enjoyed hurtling down streets in delivery carts. How the carts evolved steering mechanisms to curb on the whole fatality thing. And how finally, to prevent himself getting run out of the town by fellow locals, Bad Ruth built the first purpose-built half-pipe track in 1884. And it was, of course, used uh, 44 years later. He's basically the reason why Sam Moritz exists. Yep. Bad, to this day. Yep. Bad Ruth created the Winter Olympics, essentially. Uh, Good Ruth is telling you all about it. <laughs> Good in whose eyes, Ruth? Yeah. That, that it is pretty phenomenal. Like, we kind of stumbled upon him in kind of a, oh, what, why, did Bob, why is Bobsleigh even a thing in the last podcast? <laughs> and now, look, it turns out he was pretty much the main reason why the second Olympic Games, uh, Winter Olympic Games took place. Yeah. So that um, half pipe track that he created, it's a natural Mm. ice skeleton racing toboggan track. Uh, It's called the Cresta Run. It was used in the 1928 Olympics and, spoiler alert, 1948 Olympics. Um, (laughs) And yeah, it was in use up until fairly recently. You could still go down it. Yes. Wait, that's and, a lie. It's still open. Uh, yeah, I thought so. Okay. Uh, and it was it was a pretty, well, obviously a very popular thing to do that even like royalty were doing it. And well, in that uh, case. a month before these games, there was a funny headline I came across uh, about the uh, Belgian king, King Albert, and uh, who went down the famous bobsled run and escaped serious injury only through the firm grip of an Englishman on the seat of its trousers. Now that got me thinking. Mm-hmm. What, why would his hands be there on his to trousers. save him anyway? And then, Ruth, looking at the Olympic film, it seems that in the four years since the last one, the... Uh, the technique for bobsledding has changed quite a bit. Oh. And I'm not talking about comparing to now because it's completely different, but compared to four years previous. And now they're doing it, now being 1928, now they're doing it skeleton style 
with four men on to- laying on top of each other, head first. Don't know. <laughs> don't ask me why, but it was quite a shock uh, to, to me. I'm guessing it uh, was an improvement on the uh, the style of 1924, well, but it doesn't really feel like bobsleighing. Well, more like team skeleton. Yeah, I mean, the bobsled is just a sled. I mean, there's like it's a bit like the freestyle in the swimming. Like, oh, even though everyone does the same stroke. Um, you could do whatever you wanted. So I feel like with the bobsled, you're allowed to do whatever technique you like, and it's still the bobsled because yeah. you just have to get down the fastest. Yeah. So I feel like its integrity is intact. Yeah, it just—it's a—it was a surprise to me to to see. And I think, if anything, maybe there should be points for originality in Beijing. I mean, I, one thing I don't like about the bobsleigh nowadays, and, and, and you know, I, I mentioned it in the last pod that it's not my favorite. I just feel it's a little bit, eh. like, and the reason I feel like that is because it's such a protected little bullish that goes down. And I know you can still die, but it's a, it's, it's still a protected bullish. I like it back in the day when it was all out in the open and yeah, you might lose a limb, but you know. Suddenly, a spill. Suddenly, a spill. Good grief. <laughs> Oops, a daisy. Someone <laughs> lost an arm. <laughs> uh, Greg Rutherford is going to be a bobsledder, or is a bobsledder now, on a, a slightly different note. Greg Rutherford of 2012 mm-hmm. uh, London long, long Jump Gold Medal and 2019 Celebrity MasterChef Gold Medal. <laughs> Anyway, Great I do have some bob, I do have some bobsleigh uh, stories for you. Okay, um, mostly around the Americans. Yeah, and um, uh, what caught my eye here was that the two teams uh, named their <laughs> named their bobsleighs. One of them Hell, and the other one Satan. Mm-hmm. First, first impressions. Like Hell's meant to be hot, and it's super icy. Oh, well, that, that was another issue in these games. We, yeah, we yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> oh, are you saying it was the Americans' fault? The, uh, the slushy, <laughs> their, the slushy weather. Their, that's it. Um, <laughs> but uh, there uh, there was, I was reading about the, uh, the US team. There were two teams, of course, one mm-hmm. of them Hell, one of them Satan. And a week before in the San Moritz Derby, they finished in first and third place and it was basically all the same teams that were going to be competing uh, seven or eight days later in the uh, actual Olympic competition. And uh, Jenison Heaton's team won. And uh, the second place at the po- uh, in that competition was the Belgians and Henri Lambert, who had claimed his sled had been tampered with. Now, tampering of sleds uh, seemed to be an issue leading up to this because there was a hell of a lot of betting going on, Mm -hmm. which I guess wouldn't be a surprise when you think about the type of people that are going to San Moritz and spending the winter. And uh, so much so Oh, it's just a lark, Chris. (laughs) They're just joshing about. (laughs) Not to Henri Lambert and uh, Jenison Heaton, who uh, his team were made heavy favorites then and... So there was this kind of pool where people, um, there were auctions to get uh, a certain team. So there, you couldn't bet, like a bunch of people couldn't bet to say, I think this team is going to win or I think that team is going to win. Each team was auctioned off. And if your team won in the end, you get the whole pot. And so Heaton's team was made heavy favorites as they were auctioned off for 22,000 Swiss francs, which was $4,500 at the time. His team was Team Hell, by the way, not Mm -hmm. Satan. It was Hell. Um, But after what uh, Lambert was claiming about uh, tampering and with a lot of betting going on, uh, he made sure that he was going to lock his sleigh uh, under lock and key, basically, and make sure that nobody was going near it. In the end, though, he didn't win. It was Billy Fisk and Satan who won by a half a second in the end and claimed gold. 
Uh, but Jenison Heaton did manage to get a gold medal in the skeleton, which, as I mentioned before, is basically the same thing, except it was just one person in this case. And he beat his brother mm-hmm. into silver, who's John Rutherford Jack Heaton. Greg Rutherford. Uh, John yeah. Rutherford. There you go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so he, the two and, brothers. And he also married Billy Fisk's sister. He did. I was getting to that. It was very uh, intertwined because uh, they 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 jaunted around Europe together uh, for a number of years in the twenties and thirties. Uh, it seemed they all had very very nice lives, didn't they? Mm. Uh, the Heatons, and in fact, one of the guys on the team, Satan, who won the uh, bobsleigh gold, was Clifford Gray who was an interesting character himself. He uh, eventually moved to Paris and wrote jazz tunes for the review at the Moulin Rouge. He was known as a playboy and a world-traveling socialite and was often chronicled by the columnist O.O. McIntyre, who called him the most consistent of (laughs) the most consistent of international gadabouts, as homeless as smoke and always adrift. And uh, the screenwriter Tom Geraghty called him mysterious as the wind, absolutely omnipresent and ubiquitous. Charlie Chaplin said in his autobiography, he would appear at Hollywood parties, a negative, easygoing type with a perpetual vacuous grin. Good God. Now, Chris, you said that they had two sleds, Helen Satan. Hmm. But originally, they didn't actually have enough people to fill the two sleds. That's why they had to get people like Clifford Gray. Yeah, well, they they, they placed an advertisement in the Paris edition of the New York Herald Tribune looking for able-bodied male volunteers. And in fact, three of the gold medalists, Richard Park, Neon Tucker, and Jeff Mason, were recruited by this. And And that last man, Jeff Mason only started training with the team and indeed just generally in a bobsleigh for the first time 18 days before he won his medal. And he never sledged again after that. He had his gold medal. He had everything he needed. That's, that's you know, if I was around at that time, that's the kind of thing I would do. Mm. I think I would just, you know, no training required. Just hop in. Yeah. You know, maybe die. Maybe, maybe die. a spill will occur. But if not, you might win a medal. Lux, Lux, Lux run out for the plucky Irish. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, who's that who's been decapitated? Oh, no. It's (laughs) O'Reilly. In this bobsleigh event, we had Mexico for the first time. And not just the first time, it would be the first time and the last time until 1980 for Mexico to be at the Winter Olympics. How did they do? And they um, did very respectably. They finished 11th out of 20. But a country that did even better, Argentina. They had two teams, fourth and fifth, Chris. That's pretty good. Argentina is a country with a fair bit of snow. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, lots of countries have snow and not every country has decided, let's try and kill ourselves in this bastardized cart. <laughs> True. Okay, so uh, ballsy but, Argentinians is what you're saying. It's, it's not. It's not something that just like randomly evolves anywhere that there's snow. That it is something that's worth considering in this whole thing. Is like how how does it? I mean, that's what we wondered last week. Well, last week, last podcast, which was not last week. When like <laughs> well, well, when did this come across? Like, why did people decide they wanted to do this? Which is um, something I've I've found myself thinking while. Well, looking at a lot of these sports. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see anything good on the film other than the bobsleigh? Oh, yes. So, well, okay. First of all, probably on on whole worst Olympic film I've seen so far. <gasps> Not because of the style, the content itself, you could see where he was going for it, but there was just a lack of focus on what we want, which is some actual Winter Olympic action. Two snowballs out of ten. Not, yeah. Maybe two and a half. Two and a half, okay. Two and a half. Das Weiße Stadion. The White Stadium. 
I didn't see much of a white stadium, which is something I, I caught myself thinking after about an hour and 15 minutes of the two hour, uh, the over two hour uh, film. I think I just got myself too excited early on because um, I saw that it was directed by Arnold Fank, who was a geologist turned filmmaker. And, you know, then I was thinking, here we go. Here's one for the geologists. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, known for his brilliant cinematography outdoors. And there was a lot of that. But look, to be honest, the first 20 to 25 minutes was just a promotional video for San Moritz, uh-huh. showing normal people enjoying winter sport activities. Not normal people. We've already established they're not normal people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think that's what they were trying to get, though. I think oh. they were trying to show us, like, here's... They're tr- trying to almost... They're trying almost too hard to show, like, yeah, it could be you. Yeah, this is relatable. Uh, so I understand maybe why they did that, but it was it was way too much of a travel log. Um, big plus was uh, at some point just two men going up into the mountains and taking all of their clothes off and uh, skiing in their skimpy underwear. Oh, yes. Uh, that's to which why I, you, I sent that's you. Why, yeah, you sent me a picture of a bush. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. And there was no reaction. Completely time, unsolicited. Quite, quite, quite disappointing. Uh, the lack of response to that. Uh, <laughs> this is these are the early Olympic films. You know, you expect to see it. You do, but I didn't expect to see it in the winter ones. Uh, I I just don't know where where it was going with it. Probably um, downhill. I don't think uh, I was more cross country skiing. <laughs> you don't want to be going too fast downhill in that situation. I reckon. Um, we saw some curling in the film. But which so, is, so now, so now that I have a bit of context, which is like Commons visits San Moritz. Yes. Like, do you think maybe they were just random curlers? One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Um, which is kind of disappointing because you know there was the curling rinks were there, the participants were there. Why didn't they just have curling? I think this is going to be a common complaint yeah. of mine for Bi- the next sixty yeah. years. Um, Build a curling but- rink, and the curlers will come. And, and, and the curling and did. did come, so why yeah. not have a bit of curling? Like, I think my my <laughs> my favorite thing from it though is at the end where they have a like an intertitle which says in curling victory is not as important as dot dot dot, and then it goes to a middle aged man drinking wine. <laughs> <laughs> <And, laughs> in fairness. <laughs> Very much the, the the darts of the 1920s, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm all for that. I just want to two more things on the uh, the film because you know there's not the focus of it is really not on what actually happened. You know, there was a lot of setup scenes, and um, here's a, a throwback to the Summer Games films, mm-hmm. and they had a lot of demonstration sports. Um, including horse racing on a frozen lake, uh, harness racing, and skioring, in which the uh, skiers were dragged along by a galloping horse, which looked very, very dangerous. And in the film, we see an actress try skioring, mm-hmm. and that actress was none other than Lainey Riefenstahl. What? Callback. Callback and forward, kind of, because yeah. then a few years later... <laughs> Lainey Riefenstahl, she would be um, directing the Berlin Summer Games, which, uh, despite everything, is probably one of the top. I, I would give that eight, eight or nine snowballs out of ten at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's, it's somewhere it's not a snowball. And yeah, despite everything, yeah. as you say. <laughs> despite everything. Uh, look, you know, if you, if, yeah, you have to listen to the, that podcast to, to get my... Yeah. Let's leave it at that. Um, but yeah, wonderful that, that, that she is included in it randomly because uh, Arnold Fank um, included her in a lot of his films. And uh, there was a special section on Sonia Haney. Um, I, th- I think we'll talk a lot more about her in future games unless you have something particular now. She's 15 at this point. Uh, as you know from the last podcast she she was in as an 11 year old in the previous games she absolutely smashed everyone in in these games already and there was uh, like a three and a half minute bit where it was uh, a stage sequence of of her just 
being amazing uh, and also funny enough like there's intercuts then between uh her and then like a group of teenage boys adoringly watching and a big crowd but there's no crowd or boys there um just <laughs> very much like we'll see at the berlin summer games film i wonder where that inspiration came from uh really silly thing at the end though and i want to talk a bit about the the ice hockey later but they pretty much the last section of the, the film which is too long anyway over two hours this is canada beating switzerland 13 nil and showing every single goal often in slow motion oh that's pretty good I mean, a good, a good in terms of like capturing something, some sport. Yes, maybe I shouldn't complain. But <laughs> what's your complaint, just, Chris? Which is it? They, they could, they could have captured more sports in that time. Done. I don't know what your complaint is. Right. Well, uh, since since you mentioned <laughs> the skating, though, and we've also mentioned the uh, odd weather. I did yes. read somewhere that like so the skating, as in the figure skating, um, was on an outdoor rink and it would have been quite mild and parts of it were thawing making it extremely dangerous and i heard they had to put red flags everywhere that's like you couldn't go because it might kill you yeah yeah who yeah i mean i was looking into san moritz and the weather and it's actually supposed to be colder than the other parts of switzerland that it's near it's got like an unseasonably cold average temperature not the case during that games not the case at all yeah and 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 if it's always unseasonably presumably that's what it's seasonably it is yeah 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 any more in the weather because i have some of the weather yeah i do yeah 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 because so right, go on uh, yeah let's go and let's focus <laughs> let's, on the weather yeah, for now come on focus on the weather be very because, irish yeah, about it it was quite monstrous weather and I think nowhere was a more evident than the 50-kilometre cross-country ski. <sighs> it began that Valentine's morning with sub-zero temperatures. But as the day went on, the conditions changed completely and reached 25 degrees centigrade or 77 degrees Fahrenheit. And it was a disgrace. I mean, there was... there. It, I mean, justice. Justice for Jaffe. Justice for Jaffe. Well... So, uh, well, you can talk about Jaffe in a second, but the Swedes took a clean sweep. Clean sweep. 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 They took a clean sweep, Chris, with Per Eric Hedlunk taking gold in a time of four hours, 52 minutes and three seconds, more than 13 minutes ahead of the silver medalist Gustav Jonsson. It's a record margin which stands to this day. And all the other Swedes were decked out in blue, but Per wore white with a mm. jaunty red cap subsequently for the next 48 years in honor of his victory the swedish skiers competed in white and red oh yeah interesting i think nowadays they compete in white and then with like a hint of yellow and blue so not that not yeah. what you would expect so that still may be like could be some remnants of that tradition yeah there. it's easier to hide from polar bears if you're in white <laughs> Yeah, um, again, in the film, they looked like they were struggling all the time. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> like, if you start very, very cold and you heat up anyway, and then it's just very hot and, you know, now you're not really on snow, you're just kind of doing a bit of a water ski event. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, okay. Anyway, look, luckily our winters are getting colder, so this shouldn't be an issue for any future winter olympics oh i don't think so but yeah i mean it, it was a key part of these games which is something you don't really get when you watch the film it's like just how bad the bad the weather is for the winter games and mm. perhaps the biggest disgrace of the whole thing was the ten thousand meter speed skating event in which um well irving jaffe Poor Irving Jaffe, the American speed skater who had, well, basically they had had the heats in the 10,000 meters speed skating. Mm. And in his heat, he managed the fastest time, just one-tenth of a second ahead of uh, Berndt Evanson, who himself is an interesting character in terms of just how close he always seems to be in his races. 
But then every other heat after that are, is like two minutes slower than them. Maybe it's because of the conditions. I don't know. Either way, every single one, every single person, except for the judge who decided that it wasn't, it didn't count, felt that he had done enough to win the gold medal. So there were Swiss, uh, his fellow uh, skaters from Switzerland, they had uh, carried a banner which had inscribed on it, Jeffy, winner of the 10,000 meter race, long live America. <laughs> and the, um, however, I'll the... Have some self-respect, Switzerland. <laughs> well, look, you know, <laughs> remember where we are and where who, what kind of people are coming here, you know, and how to keep them coming back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the International Skating Federation said that the race had to be run again. Small problem, though. The vast majority of the skaters had already gone home by this point. <laughs> and um, because due to the weather and all of the delays, the whole games were like set back two days. And the Finns had sent a telegram congratulating Jaffe as well. So basically, every single person except for the Federation had given Jaffe the gold. And yeah, he is an unofficial gold medalist, if nothing else. Yeah. But official gold isn't quite as good as official gold. No, but that's it's no. it's a cruel, cruel injustice. I think I just on yeah. Bernd Evanson, um, and he he comes into the story a little bit with Klaus Thunberg as well. So he was one tenth of a second behind Jaffe in that heat. He won joint gold medal in the five hundred meter race with Klaus Thunberg. So they both finished the exact same time. And in the 1500 meters, there was 0.8 seconds between them. So he, this burnt Evanson guy is some guy for your tight, tight finishes. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't seem to get much love in the history books. Yeah, well, it's something actually that I've been been finding is that there's not much love for the Winter Olympics in the history books. <laughs> um, like, you know, we have some great books for our summer research um, and we're gonna have to write um, a book of the craziest tales of the winter olympics because no one else has done it yeah watch out jeff tibbles we're coming for yep. you we're coming for you have you much have you read up much on Klaus thunberg no okay because then in this case i'm gonna have to give a lot of love uh to hedrick hansen or henrik hansen from twitter who gave us this tip because uh, Klaus Thunberg is someone we mentioned very briefly on the last pod. And uh, his tip was to an article which was written last year on the Swedish language version of Finland's national broadcaster, YLE. And it was Jana Isaksson who wrote it all about Klaus Thunberg. Because last year, Klaus Thunberg was um, voted uh, Swedish Finland's greatest sporting hero. Okay. And, well, he... Sorry, sorry, a bit, bit of a pregnant pause there. <laughs> Go on. Uh, the article is absolutely fascinating. I'm not going to be able to go through all of the wild things that happened. We're just going to have to tweet the article because, I mean, it, I'll, I'll go through the, the headlines. Yeah. It starts brilliantly with this quote. It's like, Klasse, remember what you promised. And... What apparently he'd promised, because he'd already won two gold medals at the um, at the previous Winter Games, that in the 10,000 meters in 1924, that he promised his teammate that he was going to let him win. <gasps> right? Now, that's, that's the sort of promise you want to get down in writing. <laughs> I feel like, like it's very easy to say. It is. And if there's anything we've learned from these early win early Olympic Games in general, it's that there's a lot of people screwing each other over, right? A lot of a lot of dodgy dealings going on. Is it on. screwing you? Is it? I I know uh, team class here. Like uh, Chris, oh, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't let someone else. I don't think. I don't take. think uh, you have to let me finish this story because I think okay. where you think it's going is not where it went. <gasps> okay. Indeed. Because Klaus Thunberg did in fact allow Julius Skutnab to pass him 
and beat him by three seconds and win gold for the 10,000 meters. But was he just tired? Like, like, was it, like, could he have won it or was he just like, oh, do you know what? I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to bow to Jana Isaacson's expertise here. And based on the article he's written, um, I think it seems like he did his homework. Uh, but Klaus Lundberg uh, was the world's most successful male skater. But wait, no, no, no. So go back. You're just saying that like people are stabbing each other in the back. Like surely this was a good friend moment. No, yes, that's my point. Oh, sorry. It's okay, in contrast to all of that. Oh, I apologize. Yeah. I apologize. It's in sorry, contrast to the, the shithousery of the okay, <laughs> early I'm 20th sorry. century. This is a good tale. Yes, Klaus Lundberg, good guy overall not much you can say about about him being bad in this i mean uh, anyway like why did he not want the gold he already had enough he he was a guy i mean this this is a guy who spent his post career days like collecting clothes for his war ravaged finland giving away his trophies and medals so that like people could be fed he he didn't care he wanted to do stuff for his nation it wasn't and in fact, he kind of had two nations. He was like, Norway was his second home and the king of Norway absolutely loved him as well. And it's all in this article, which is just phenomenal. But like before all of that... Counterpoints, but, 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 but counterpoints, Chris. On. Had, he had, had he had that extra gold medal and he'd uh-huh. sold that, he would have been able to get well, again, more I f- food I f- for yeah, the starving I feel like kids. I'm just setting you up here for disappointment oh, over no! and over again. Because <laughs> actually, the five goals he got, they were the only things he didn't give away. He gave away everything okay. else, except but, for the five gold medals he got. Um, but he gave away the gave silver. away the silver and bronze, yeah, that he got. Um, okay. But he... he uh, at age 18, on Christmas Eve, 1911, uh, he had a really, really bad cold. And a doctor told his father, that boy will not live until tomorrow. But he survived and decided at the ripe old age of 18 that he would quit smoking. He was a 50-a-day boy. Uh, because apparently um, doctors had recommended that 14-year-old Klaus uh, should start smoking as a disinfectant against the diphtheria epidemic in Helsinki. Is that diphtheria? Diphtheria. I'd never heard of that before today. Sounds pretty nasty. Uh, At one point, he was uh, arrested by the Russians and was thrown into a cell because they suspected him of being uh, part of the movement to liberate Finland from Tsarist Russia. Uh, He said he didn't really know much about that. He was just focusing on his skating. Um, and um, at one point his father became unemployed and the family were close to the uh, poverty line so he uh, went to a wealthy bed manufacturer Theodore Lundfush and offered to give one of his trophies as collateral for a loan which he then repaid the same month however Lundfush then reported him and he got banned for professionalism. Uh, right? Dirty, dirty, dirty. They, they wanted him to be banned for life, but um, he managed to avoid that. This was all before the before he started winning the medals in the Olympics. <laughs> so he'd been through a lot. After winning uh, those three in 1924, uh, there was like a brutal... Uh, regime of events that they had to go through and he had like the European Championship a couple of weeks later and then a World Championship a couple of weeks after that at home in Helsinki uh, he was feeling really bad after one of the races and unsurprisingly he was told by the doctor basically you're just burnt out you need to take a rest so he did but Theodore Lundfors who was the organizer of the competition then announced to the public that he simply wasn't, he didn't give a reason for him not taking part. And then he became like public enemy number one, um, which so feels like there's a lot of obstacles in poor Klaus Lundberg's life here. Uh, went to America for a while to, to do what Pavo Nurmi did, who was like, a, you know, the, uh, he was known as the, the Nurmi on ice. So the, there were these two Finns here that were just killing it in the international uh, racing scene. 
one on the track, one on the ice. I uh, went to America, had a bit of a dodgy time there, like uh, it was being set up a little bit in terms of the races he was involved in. But with the help of Pavo Nermi, he managed to turn it all around and win two more gold medals in 1928. Do you know what the secret to his success was? Um, bottle of brandy. Almost. No, <laughs> this is Pavo. This is somebody who who was like friends with Pavo Nermi, the like ultimate distance runner. But his tip for him was to dance, Ruth. Dancing Aww. was the key. And so uh, what Thunberg did was he would uh, get a bunch of uh, gramophone records at home and he'd swing around the sofa uh, for an hour every single night. And then in 1928, at the absolute peak of his career, uh, Pavo Nermi called him uh, while he was in San Moritz and asked, uh, what, what did you do to be in such good shape? And he said, he replied laughing, what do you advise me to do? Dance. Dance. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is like an amazing story, I think. Klaus Thunberg, and, uh, I, I don't think I've given everything he's done and everything he's been through enough credit because i think i've talked enough about it but yeah we'll tweet the article uh, which was uh, put out and yeah what a story so in conclusion thunberg a real class oct <laughs> <laughs> nice ski jumping hit me chris yeah the norwegians weren't happy they weren't happy. Samoritz built the Olympian Shenzhou. A <laughs> the what? Ski jump. <laughs> you heard me. The Olympia Shenzhou. Okay. That's that's my romance. It's very good. <laughs> a 70 meter high ski jump, um, which was considerably higher than what anyone had ever been used to before. And the Norwegians felt this gave weaker jumpers a boost because, you know, if you're jumping from higher... You don't need to have as much skill. You just go further, or so they said. So the Swiss called the Norwegians cowards. And um, Jacob Tulin Thams, he was the one who secured gold in Chamonix. He was tied for fifth after his first jump. So he took an almighty leap on the second, clearing the landing zone and achieving a record-shattering distance of 73 metres, which, for reference, the next longest jump recorded that day was 64.5 metres. He didn't get the gold, though, because he fell on landing and was uh, then deducted points for style, or lack thereof. He was taken to hospital with his injuries, but was able to pronounce, I at least got to show those guys that we're not cowards. (laughs) Which is really at the core of what the Winter Olympics is all about. Yeah. Conquering the Olympia Schanze. The Olympia Schanze. <laughs> what else have we got? All right, ice hockey. Yeah. Briefly mention it there. Have you got a lot of it? No, I don't. I just, I just, I know that basically the organizers were like, Canada's too good. Yeah. So they're not allowed to play until the very end. Um, I mean, in 1924, they won all their matches by quite a margin. Uh, a combined uh, score of 132 to three. Mm. So they decide, like, it, there's there's no point. They're they're going to be in the final, so there's no point making them play against other teams, which and make the other teams cry. So yeah, just put them in the final, and everyone else has to work their way to see who has the honour of playing them in the final. And I think they did rather well in the final, didn't they, Chris? Uh, The the Canadians did. Yeah, (laughs) they did very well. The the other teams did not. Uh, Yeah, so the other 10 teams were in three groups and the the winner of each group got through. So Sweden, Great Britain and Switzerland. Uh, They qualified for the final round and were beaten by a total of 38 to nil. So Canada won gold without conceding a single goal. Um, but they were still not happy, the Canadians. And it was also weather-related. Um, <laughs> quoting uh, here from an article I read uh, in the New York Times at the time. Uh, Protests became the order of the day as soon as Canada entered hockey limelight. They cast an eye at the swimming pool labelled hockey rink and refused yeah. to play against Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, PJ Mulqueen, 
who was clearly Irish, chairman of the Canadian Olympic Committee, said, we came here to play hockey and not water polo. And, uh, you know, maybe it would have been, actually would definitely have been a little bit different if the American team had appeared um, because the Americans didn't take part in, no. in the ice hockey, uh, which is a bit of a pity because they, they would have had an interesting story about uh, the team that was selected to go uh, was from Augsburg College, and five of the players were all brothers, the Hansen brothers, who um, whose great great grandchildren would become Hansen, the band we all know and love twenty five years ago. Uh, but they, uh, yeah, they were supposed to go, and then for some reason, in the last minute, uh, the American Olympic Committee, because. We know what they're like, uh, told them, no, you're not going. So there you go. guess they didn't want to be embarrassed by the Canadians. Funnily enough, though, the Hansen brothers had all moved to America from Canada. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was military patrol, but like it was only, it was only demonstration, Chris. Demonstration, yes, it wasn't a film. Well, curling was in the film and it wasn't I anywhere. So, so, was, I mean, so was nude skiing. I so mean, was nude skiing. Like, that's my whole I mean, point about this film. Two hours and not enough of the actual sport. So, I don't know, Chris. And Norway I won think. it. That much I know. They did. Well, I mean, I mean, they won it, but like, what did they win? Like, they, they won nothing, but yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry to be blunt to the Norwegians, but like... Norway. Where's your gold medal? Norway like, won enough gold medals. What What do they do win a cuckoo clock? Clock like I I, I just it's yeah it's ridiculous, Chris. It's, it makes a mockery of the Olympics. <laughs> what else have we got? I've got nothing, Chris. Ah, I'm leaving it oh. on that. I'm leaving it on. I'm leaving it on that disgruntled note. Okay. <laughs> I'm storming out. I just love a good biathlon, or like a winter decathlon, and. <sighs> It's a disgrace that it just wasn't given its place. Let me ask you a question. Do. Um, on another demonstration sport, mm-hmm. ski oaring, right? Ski oaring. Where uh, they're dragged around by horses. Why horses? So, do you know what, Chris? When you first told me about ski oaring, last, last part. Yeah. I had a different image in my head. It's because I heard the words Hmm. and then you started to explain it. I was like, okay, yeah, it's slightly different to what I'm thinking. But I heard ski oaring. And so I kind of had this idea like like a boat. Um, (laughs) A boat on skis? No, more like a boat where you have to oar through the snow. Oh, God. Um, and then you said, like, you can have reindeers. And I thought, oh, that's great. Like, yeah, you can put a few reindeers up front. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not saying the actual ski oaring is better or worse. I'm just saying we both have ideas. Um, mm. Yeah. But yeah, so ski oaring, what was your question, Chris? <laughs> uh, what horses, were they, were they necessary? I mean, this is, this is a question I, would, I have in general for the Olympics now. Life. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would prefer reindeers. I think it's better. Yeah. Or huskies. Like, oh, I just, yeah. I feel bad. I feel bad for horses' feet. Mm. Like, do they, get, do they get to wear little socks? Didn't look like it. No. Okay. Uh, that would probably not help with the grip. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the event. Horses, horses strike me as being very emotional. Like, and I just think... Um, you need a reindeer or a dog for that sort of thing, for that kind of hardy, psychologically draining work. Yeah. The event was swept by three Swiss athletes. Um, and but, it were never... Were there any other athletes? Well, it w- it was the least of least detailed results I could find uh, because the official report of the Games didn't actually list any results. <laughs> mm. And this would be the very last time the sport was included in the games. It would never again appear as either a demonstration or a medal sport. Okay, I'm looking at some pictures. 
Oh my god! So this is like so. Okay, I'm sorry. Like I was picturing something completely different. I thought like the horses were pulling a sled. Oh my god! It's just pulling a person on skis. Uh, yes. Why don't we have ski oaring at the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, imagine we had reindeer or huskies. Yeah, I would prefer the huskies. Just mm. I think, as uh, was mentioned on a summer Olympopod. Why are there no dogs at the Olympics? They're all good boys. Um, and yeah, I and, and whenever there have been dogs at the Olympics, it's always gone down very well. So yeah, I'd love to see a bit of um dog ski oaring. Okay. Well I, Is it it is it you can you can definitely do it with dogs, because I'm also seeing dog sledding here. But yeah, dog sledding's with a sled. Chris, I'm all for ski oaring. Yeah. I mean, it seems quite it seems like it has the potential to be to be incredibly dangerous. So yeah, so I'm really surprised it wasn't in the games. Yeah, so like there's two ways to do your horse skioring. One is which with somebody on the horse and then you behind the horse on your skis. And the other is just you and your horse. You're on the skis and the horse is going wild. Like how do you how do you stop your horse, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I also read I somewhere that, that, she, <laughs> that, she, that, that that this Swiss one was unusual in that it had no jumps in it. It was just yeah, a flat, like what? <laughs> yeah, I don't think there should be jumps anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Now I'm yeah. now I'm getting like you know visions of water skiing. Yeah, it's jumps. I am yeah. so into ski oaring now, Chris. Like I, I've I've had two or three different images before I've actually had the balls to Google image it, and uh, it's brilliant. And yeah, I'm up for it. I want to go yeah. ski oaring. Don't want to go ski oaring with a dog, but I want to go ski oaring. I think that's a beautiful way to uh, leave it for today. You've nothing else. I think we're good. You're good. Okay, you've We've done a whole fifty-three minutes. Ah, there's a bit of waffle. Um, so, Chris, there always is. What's happening next, <laughs> Ruth? Next, we're going to Lake Placid. You may all know that as the Miracle on Ice venue, but you're going to have to wait a while for that. This is Lake Placid, episode one. Yeah, I mainly know Lake Placid from the. Brendan Gleeson film about the giant crocodile. Neither of which will appear in the next episode of the Olympic Or will it? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> until next week. Um, I mean, maybe. I mean, look. <laughs> we'll, we'll try and have it until next week. Until next time. Until next time. Bye. Bravo.